Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Episode 190, Huga. I can't stop this feeling. You know how the song goes deep inside of me. Huga, title of this episode, is a quality of coziness and comfortable conviviality that engenders a feeling of contentment or well being. It's part of the Danish culture. I'm not Danish, but I have a little huga going on, as I can't stop this feeling of how giddy I am about spring this year. Things look good. Happy times in there. Hours, as my Brian would say. Um, It's going to be an easygoing episode, just chitty-chatty. Don't really have a a super formal plan. Just going to cover a bunch of stuff that's going on. It's been a busy season. So let me tell you what I'm going to talk about. First thing... Just a quick note on a project management approach, an agile way of thinking of the bee season. Uh, Second thing I'm going to talk about, we're in the market for an extractor and talk about the purchasing process. I will discuss Chester County conference revisit and say hello to a listener who said hello to me and I didn't get a chance to answer. I got to come back to honey jelly. Oops, what a mess. I'll explain. I have a topic, introduction to the Getting Started series from the Beekeeper's Corner, starting Wednesday nights on Zoom. I'll have more on that when we get there. Also talk about topic to a bonus episode coming this week. And maybe somewhere along the line, different things will creep in, but I think it's time to get started. Roundtable number one, this is about a project management approach I call it Agile. I've just completed sprint zero. I'm getting ready for sprint number one or in the middle of sprint one, planning for sprint two. It's an epic to do my spring planning. I'm bastardizing the agile management approach, but at work, this is what we do. We have a product tool called Jira, which we use to track our user stories and If this all sounds like gibberish, I can kind of make the connection to you. I know that, using myself as the example in the spring, I have a bunch of different things. Let's just give it the word thing to do. I have to do equipment preparation. I had to move my bees. I had to prep the yard. I had to check in on the bees and make sure that they were ship shape ready for coming out of winter and so on. If you think about the way that your activities are structured, you have these larger plans that require you to break them down into smaller parts and then structure them to do little things like a to-do list. The thing about your ideas in the beginning in a waterfall project management approach is that you tend to plan all that out and then you go work your plan plan the work, work the plan, which is a great way to go, except that halfway through something changes. A storm comes through, does some damage. You got to stop what you're doing and now add that to the plan and add the other thing to the plan. So the whole point of the agile approach is plan what you have in front of you, plan the big picture, but work on the thing in front and then stop, reassess. They call that backlog grooming. I know all these crazy terms that they came up with. And replan your plan from that point forward to the end and just keep doing that over and over again. So if I could sum up and and make the connection, I said in the beginning of the season before the weather broke, there were things that I had to do. Go work in the garage, get everything set up and prepared for the splits and queen rearing and all of that stuff. And then I had to figure out how I was going to move my bees, which I'll talk about later, and where I was going to put them in all of that. All of these planning activities, if I could 
be so bold. I'll call that sprint zero. This is where you plan to make your plan. Then you start executing your plan and you put your little pieces together. Now, how much do I have planned? And this is an interesting concept for beekeepers. Did you plan your entire season? In one of the recent episodes, Bob Claus and I talked about what we wanted to do this entire 2021 season. As much as I know that that's in the back of my head and that's on the board, so to speak, I really am just going to work two weeks at a time. And every two weeks, I'll kind of look at what's in front of me and figure out what I need to adjust and I'll make my next plan for two weeks. This is called a sprint. You work your sprint. You plan what you're going to do in those two weeks. And then at the end of the two weeks, you plan your next sprint. Yeah, just wanted to share this notion. I, I don't need to go any further with that. Um, but it's a different way of thinking. It's kind of like forcing you every two weeks to stop what you're doing, assess what changed. Does, did something else come in? Did you capture a swarm? And now you need to build that into the plan. You had no idea when you started out. You might have had an inkling that a swarm was coming. But, yeah. So, uh, a project management approach called Agile. If you want to look it up, there's tons and tons of information out there. But it's just a different way of thinking of things. You know, one of the things I'll say to close this out is, when you embrace this idea, then if your plan that you originally set out with which is constantly disrupted because it's not going according to plan. Drives you nuts. It just drives you crazy. You can't live and deal with that. This is how you solve that, is you understand that change is imminent. You know, they talk about a, a war plan that never, ever goes the way it's supposed to go. As soon as you get into battle, the battle changes everything. That's the dynamic of it. So roundtable number one was just a short little aha moment I had recently about the agile approach to beekeeping. Moving on, roundtable number two, I'm going to move fast, extractor shopping. I kind of think after a number of years, I was speaking on the phone with Bob Kloss yesterday and he said this to me. I think you're safe to buy an extractor if that's what you want to do. This is not going to be a passing fancy for you. I kind of giggled at that. We want to do more honey production. That's where we think we're going to go in our future. And while the, the Maxent extractor that we've been borrowing from the club year after year for our annual honey production thing has been just spectacular really nice to use that machine. It's time to get our own. A couple years ago, I was at a show standing over this lustful extractor that I saw that checked the boxes for all the requirements. And it was a little pricey and they were going to give me a super great because they didn't want to drive the thing back home. They didn't want to load it into the truck and all that. And I called Sharon and we weren't quite ready. I kind of wish now that we had done it, but that's the way the world goes. So I've been doing some extractor shopping, just looking what's in the marketplace. And the way I see it is they're not terribly complicated in a shopping experience. There's two, four, nine, 20, 30 frame extractors. They vary by manufacturer. To my knowledge, and I have limited knowledge because I only use the one the club has, the Maxant one seems to be the one. It's the brand. There's a bunch of different other secondary brands. I really don't know much about them. I'm sure they're probably fine. But to me, based on what I see from them, the Maxant one is like the industrial one. Lately, what I've seen, and someone sent a message to our association thing asking, what's the best extractor brand? And because I have experience with Maxant and I know that a lot of people are favorable, that's what I would recommend. But another brand that's emerging is the one out of Poland called Lysen. 
L-Y-S-O-N is the way you spell that. That's the one I was standing over at a show. Now, I don't think if I'm ever going to purchase one for myself that I would buy anything other than one that's motorized. I just wouldn't do it. I, I know they have manual ones, but for the amount of honey we're going to extract, that's the one that I would use. So we're looking at buying a motorized one. And when I start looking at the costs of ones for the size that we want, they're about $1,000. <laughs> I remember when we bought the first one, it was around 500 something. But now when I look at that model, it's 900. And if you buy the legs, that's another $50 or something. And then from that, you pay more to ship it because they're big, bulky, heavy pieces of equipment. A lot of them will come on a truck. They're not going to get shipped through Amazon <laughs> kind of shipping. They're, they're literally going to come on, you know, a straight job truck. So we settled on the license model, 20 frame motorized. One of the reasons I like that machine, the way the legs come down, they have supports underneath it. It should keep it from getting that death wobble. I feel like one drawback to the Max Ant machine is the legs long and spindly create that opportunity for the machine to shake like a washing machine, which has a load off of its kilter there. Uh, this machine seems to be braced from the top and the bottom. And the other thing is the motor sits underneath the tank and the top opens up. Now, one of the nice features of this thing is it has a clear Lexigan, Lexan top. And when you lift the lid, it stops it and it's got a motor stop and all. Nice. It's got a built-in honey gate. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to go crazy about the, talking about the, the features and functions. Uh, one thing I did here while doing research for it, though, is it has some sort of funny whistle sound. And I can only find a handful of videos. So obviously when we get this thing and we use it, I think the world needs to know more about it. So I'll probably make some videos on its usage. But it sounds like as the thing spins somewhere in the gearing, it creates this really high-pitched sound. And I'm not sure what that's about. But, but it's, I guess, a well-known entity. So... Yeah, so the funny thing was we talked about whether we would ship this thing. And then we said, well, it's sold by Better Bee. That's who has the license extractors. And the question is, could we avoid the $350 or whatever it's going to cost to ship this thing by driving somewhere? So it turns out that Better Bee is somewhere in New York, north of the New York Thruway. And Sharon happens to be off on Friday, and I'm in the need of a day off. And we're trying to figure out the math. Two tanks of fuel, 300 up, 300 miles back. And a day's effort of driving up there, wear and tear on the vehicle. Is that worth $350? I think it is. So we might be riding up to New York State. Nice, pleasant ride. Put on an audio book listen to some beekeeping podcasts or something like that. So we're extractor shopping. I guess if we do make this purchase, you'll hear about it on the next go around. Roundtable number three, coming back to the Chester County Conference. When that conference occurred, which was an online all day conference, right in the middle of it, my twin brother Keith showed up with his Kubota tractor. He was doing me a super solid favor by coming up and working in the new BR to help level the ground for me. I was literally doing it with a shovel and doing it by hand. And he made a yeoman's job uh, simple, straightforward by helping me with that. So I left the conference, but I had something in my back pocket and the fact that they had sent a message saying that all of the, the sessions would be recorded and that they would send it to us. And so this week, I've been watching those. 
I went to the Deb Delaney Honeybee Nutrition, and I went to the Deb Kluger's Introduction to Apotherapy, but I didn't get to see anything else. So Tom Seeley spoke on Bee Colony as a honey factory. Um, Randy Oliver did his reading of the combs, which I've seen before. But I was really interested to see Dewey Karen, resource hives, and stuff that Bob and I spoke about on the last episode. I watched the Solomon Parker one this week. Uh, I know Solomon enough to understand what he was going to say, but it, it was interesting to see what his commentary was. What I really wanted to see is Sue Colby. Sue Kobe, sorry, not Colby, Kobe. I just twisted the words. So I know what her name is. Instrumental insemination. I've seen Sue present that talk a long time ago when I knew really little to nothing about that. And I wanted to come back and watch that one again just to get a sense of that, especially now that I'm doing some queen rearing. And I'm really uh, excited to see the two talks by Marla Spivak because I've never seen her speak before. So I'm, I'm thrilled to death that they did what they did, which was make recordings of these and offer them to us temporarily. I installed the TV on the, on the wall next to me. Since I'm in my home office <laughs> and sitting all day in this office, I can put something up on the TV sometimes. And so what I've been doing on my computer is playing YouTube from my computer and casting the screen up. And while I'm toiling through my Jira board that I talked about earlier, I can kind of listen in the background to what they're saying. So I've really been enjoying the conference videos. I've watched three or four of them. I watched Dewey, Karen the other day. I love Dewey. He's, he's amazing. And thank you again to Chester County. Great conference. They're going to do it again next year, just like they always do. And they really put on a good show. I wanted to take a moment before I close out this roundtable and say hi to Marcella Houghton. Uh, hopefully I pronounced your name right. When I walked away that day, I was still logged into the session. I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to get back into it. I worked all afternoon, working with my brother, helping him, directing him, telling what's what. And when I came back afterwards, the session was still open and everybody was kind of chatting. It was like the post-meeting debrief. And I saw a note from Marcella to me to say hi, to listen to the podcast. And I felt bad that I didn't answer back. They probably thought I ignored um, the note. So I noticed your name, wanted to say thanks for checking in. I like that when people say hello and say they listen to the show. It's always nice when they check in. Round table number four, honey jelly. I have to come back to this. I know that I received three or four emails for people asking for the recipe. I have a oops, not an oops, um, a retraction. So what I said was I built this recipe out of, the, out of the guide that I found. And then what ended up happening was I, I kind of went about it in a roundabout way. And I wanted to make sure that it worked. That was my hope. Um, so I had finished all, I actually ate all that uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that I got through it all. All the honey jelly, I made four jars. Actually, I think I gave one away, so I ate three of them. And I wanted to make it again, just to be sure that the recipe was sound before I gave it out. And so the honey jelly recipe from the FAO.org website is 220 grams of water, 3-4, so I'm guessing they say 3-4 to four grams of pectin, 800 grams of honey and 1.5 to 2 milliliters of tartaric acid at a concentration of 50% weight volume in water. That's hard to follow unless you're one of the metric system. But what you do is you mix the, the water and the pectin and the honey together and you cook it up to a certain temperature, 60 degrees Celsius. And then afterwards you pull off and you add the tartaric acid. Well, when I did this recipe, the FAO one, it didn't work. When I originally did this back, I want to say in 
February was when I was doing this, February or early March. It didn't work. I got a honey syrup. So what I did was I poured all the honey syrup jelly back into a pan and I added a container of sure gel, fruit pectin. This is a pouch that comes from the store. And when I cook that up to the proper temperature following the sure gel instructions, lo and behold, I had jelly. So I wanted to repeat this process and I decided it was the sure gel that saved me. So instead of following the FAO recipe, I did it differently. I just prepped it with shore gel. Mix the honey with the water, add the shore gel, bring it up to boiling, boil it hard for one minute, take it off the pan, let it cool a little bit, add the tartaric acid, pour it in jars. I now have four jars of honey syrup. It's kind of like caramel sauce. It's not thin. It's got thick. It's got a body to it, but it's not jelly. So the interesting part is I thought, well, huh, this didn't work at all. Maybe what I'll do is go back to the original pectin that I used in the amount that the FAO specified. I'll reheat the jelly because that's what it says on the package label for sure gel. If it didn't work, add more pectin, bring it back up the temp and do all that. And I did that and I, and I ended up with syrup still. It didn't gel. So I'm not sure now. <laughs> I'm not sure. And I'll continue to experiment with it. So if you were looking for a honey jelly recipe, the first thing you say is, oops, sorry, I don't have a solid one. Second thing to say is, I'm glad I didn't give it to you because if it didn't work, you all would have yelled at me. So if you're waiting for a honey jelly recipe, sorry, I'll keep working on it. You know, you can go on the internet and search honey jelly and find some. Um, maybe I have to retract from this FAO thing and, and go the other route. So while I'm at it, FAO.org. You want to search for something called value-added products from beekeeping. This is that guide that I was speaking about. It's by R. Krell, K-R-E-L-L. It's the FAO Agricultural Services Bulletin number 124. And for inquiring minds, Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, Rome, 1996 is when this guide was written. This is where the jelly recipe comes from. Now, again, what I'll specify about this, if you didn't hear the previous episode, is this is a whole bunch of different recipes and they're meant for industrial. They don't specify what kind of pectin to use, what kind of equipment they're using and all of that. So... Honey jelly, I, I'm going to keep working on it. I will succeed because if you know me, that's my bent. <laughs> All right, round table number five. What's going on this week? I wanted to make a record of what occurred for the podcast, so I have it recorded as a milestone. I'll remind everybody that the whole actual original point of this podcast was so that... Um, I would have a record of our beekeeping exploits. So the first thing to say is this past week, we moved the hives. And with great assistance from Sharon, of course, and I have to thank again, Keith and Karina, they came out early on a Sunday morning and put their backs into it. And I, I so appreciate the help. It's always nice when you know you can call others to come help you in a job that's a little bit daunting. So one of the first questions is, why do we move our hives? If you've ever seen any of the videos on Northwest Channel of our bee yard, I have to say, I almost cried. At the end of moving the hives, I stopped, I knelt down on one knee, and I said a little prayer to the bee gods to thank them for all their time they spent with us in that sacred piece of ground. <laughs> um, someone bought the property next door. And what I know about that is they're, they're going to build a house. I don't know whether it's going to be this year or next year, but honestly, the 
the hives being on the property margin with strangers coming in. I didn't want to deal with that. We could have moved them back more on our property. There's a little tiny creek that runs back there. and It just didn't seem like a good thing. So we scouted the yard, walked around, as I talked about in a previous episode, and picked a spot. And with Keith's help and some of Sharon's help, we got it all sorted out. So Sunday was move day. Um, third contingency twice removed. <laughs> That's how we transported the bees. So what I would say to you is, and this is the lesson learned, I had it in my brain that we were going to use our lawn tractor with a cart that attaches to it. Well, it turns out last year when Sharon was mowing leaves, she got a stick stuck in the drive belt and it got wedged into the pulley. And when it did that, the tractor wouldn't move. She didn't understand why. And it ended up, I had to push the tractor back to the garage, take it apart and use a hammer and chisel to get that stick out of the pulley. It was that wedged in there. Well, the drive belt rode on that and it probably stretched it and damaged it. And for whatever reason, she was able to use it last fall, but as it sat all winter, it's no good. So now when you step on the, the throttle for the tractor, it just sits there and spins. Well, we discovered that the night before. All good plans. It kind of worked if you somewhat pressed and held tension, but we were going uphills and you're pulling the cart with weight and whatever. Not a good way to go. So plan B was when I called Keith, because I knew he was coming, to bring his Kubota tractor. He had it loaded in his uh, trailer from when he came to see me. So he brought it, but that morning it wouldn't start. And technically I had in my mind a plan C, which was to use our yard cart. So I don't know if you have one of these, but if you're a beekeeper, it, it may seem, look, yuppie people who have exorbitant money go buy these kind of things but you know I've seen people buy wheelbarrows and they buy little carts and they buy this and that if you're a homeowner there's one thing you should do and you should spend money on this is buy one of those yard carts we bought one when we first got married because I used one from somebody else's yard and I knew over the years 30 years of owning one of these it was going to pay for itself in spades it's got the big bicycle wheel, big bicycle wheel, like 30 inch plus. You could put logs and you could put a person in there and, and anyone can wheel it if you get the balance right. Well, that's what we ended up using. The combination of the tractor, which the gear was slipping, and the cart. And <laughs> we had to go up the hill in the backyard. And we put... Sharon on the tractor and Keith, Karina, and I were pushing the thing. And let me tell you, we got a good workout that day. So we got through moving all the hives. What I did is the night before on Saturday, I went, closed them all off, taped them off. On Sunday morning, it was just a matter of making sure they were strapped really well and putting them in. Now, when we put them in the cart, we slid them together. And when we slid them together, the roofs, the telescope knocked one of the roofs sideways on one of the polystyrene hives and the bees came pouring out. I was the one that went back into the cart to shove the thing back over and I got one little sting on the top of my forehead. But that's about the extent of it. We were able to close them off. No other bees got out. We wheeled them one at a time over and set them up on the stands and everything went really well. Happy with the way the yard was set up. It was a beautiful morning. What I did was we moved them early, early in the morning and I let them be and left them closed until mid-afternoon. I want to say one o'clock. At one o'clock it went from 30 degrees to 60 degrees. I opened all the hives and I walked away. For the entire afternoon from 1 to 4 o'clock, they were doing orientation flights. And by the next day, they were already out and foraging. 
So one of the questions you have is three meters to three miles when you move your hives. I moved them from one side of my property to the other. They were probably about 400 yards, I'd say, from where they were. We have a couple acres. So the question is, did the bees go back to the original yard? The answer is yes. We happened to have a day off on Monday at work. The company was shut down, so I was home. I went out to the bee yard on that Monday, and I took one of my six-frame polystyrene nukes, and I put it on a stand and set it in the old bee yard. When I walked in at 10 a.m., there were bees flying all over the place, trying to figure out what's what. And little tip, <laughs> you're the only thing they can land on, <laughs> so they're all kind of swarmed to me. They weren't malicious at all. They just would come to you because they were looking for something to, to go into. So we were very happy when I put that out. Now, how many bees were there? I went back later that night when it was cooler and they all clustered. There were about 50 bees total. Not even the size of a baseball. Now, let me make something really clear here. Three meters or three miles. I did it at the end of winter where they hadn't been actively foraging. The weather had just gotten to the cusp of breaking to the point where they would be out foraging all the time. They probably did some foraging, the hives, because there were some crocus up and whatever, but they weren't flying in earnest. Most days you still see the newbies coming out and doing their orientation flights. There wasn't this mass nectar flow slash foraging thing going on. And it, note to self, if you want to move bees, move them in the winter when it's cold and they're on the cluster. And that morning it was 30 degrees. You could see your breath. I know they were in. Now, if it's the middle of the season, you're doing this in, say, July, and you're moving bees, yeah, three meters or three miles would be my guess. So the bee yard all set up seven hives on seven pads. We brought the scale over. That's pad number eight. My goal in the future is to clear the land, you know, level another spot and put four more pads and have 12 in that yard. The difference in this yard from the other one is the other one was long, like a long rectangle. This one is a square. So I have four hives in the front, four hives in the back. I... I like the yard. I like the visual of it. I like the location of it. The sun seems to be good. Talk to me in a month when all the leaves are on the trees and we'll see how much sun it's going to get. If you didn't know, haven't listened to the show in the past, um, we have a very shaded lot because everything's in the trees, which is not ideal, but it is what it is. My neighbor down the road, Jim, he literally lives on the other end of my road, and I've talked about him in the past. Has uh, 12, 13, he's got lots of hives down there. And this year, he's going to get them inspected by the state apiarist, and he's going to have some bees for sale. He's going to sell some nukes and make splits. So the state apiarist was supposed to come on Wednesday, but it rained. So she's going to come up this week to visit Jim. And I asked her while she was here if she would swing by, because I'm literally just down the road. I don't know which of the days she's coming. I'm guessing it's going to be maybe Wednesday or Thursday, but um, I'm looking forward to getting to, to talk to Megan and see how things are going and just have her have a peek in my bees and stuff. And I think they're in good shape. So the move is done. I'm settled in. I am going to miss the old yard. I really did like the karma there, but, but I'm already off to a good start. And I'll come back to that in a second when I get to the local hive report at the end. Roundtable number six, just a quick nod to the New Jersey State Beekeepers Association. They had a meeting this past week where they did um, regulations, New Jersey State laws, regulations, coverage. Really smart idea to do this for them. 
they just kind of invited the membership to come in and Frank Mortimer was the MC, did a really good job. Complicated topic sometimes to discuss, but he broke it down Barney style. And uh, Isidore, the state president, did a, a admiral job too, just helping field the questions. And they went through and stayed till anybody had anything they wanted to get out of their system answered. And, you know, they, they did a... Uh, a really good job stepping through the different things that applied. They had Megan in the background to clarify any questions. And, you know, one of the big things is um, the state system for registering the hives has been a little problematic. Some people go through with flying colors, but every once in a while, people have challenges, me being one of them. I just can't get my hives registered. Um, I know they're working on that. And, you know, They'll get that sorted out. So if you didn't get through, keep trying. Um, you know, so compliments to, to Frank on how he led the session and, and uh, smart job by them to put that together. They should do that occasionally. And, you know, if you're part of a bee association, uh, you know, maybe you could follow the lead of New Jersey Beekeepers Association. It's a smart thing to do to get people on the right page and, and following suit clears a lot of things up and it probably solves some problems for your state apiarists. If you think about one of the things that they do probably is chase problems where people, if they had known the laws or uh, followed some of the guidelines, you, you wouldn't have your state apiarist wasting time on that stuff. So also quick mention that the state of New Jersey put together a t-shirt sale and hats and caps and other things and bought a couple of them. I bought two of them. Bought myself one and bought one for the birthday boy, Bob Kloss. Happy birthday to you. Uh, I just figured while I was there since I was paying shipping. So if you're part of New Jersey uh, Beekeepers Association, you better get your order in because they're going to close it out soon. All right, switching gears. I'm just going to try and keep moving along. I want to talk about the new thing that I'm working on that I've been working on for a year and a half. It's been through different permutations now and I'm finally ready to announce it. So out on the website is the beekeepers corner getting started in beekeeping guide. And I have been working with my association, Northwest New Jersey beekeepers to do a managed mentoring program, which was a somewhat different take on the getting started guide. Now what I'm going to do is put my money where my mouth is. And I really do believe that this training idea that I have about spreading the training out in small little snackable modules is the best way to go. And so I'm going to push the chips in on it. And what I'm going to do is starting this Wednesday, I'm going to go online and I'm going to start recording small presentations. Anywhere from 10, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, no longer than 30 minute presentations. And I'm modeling this after different um, training systems that I've been through that follows the edict that your mind can only absorb what the butt can endure. And people's attention spans or their ability to sit in on something is just too limited because of our hectic on-the-go lifestyles. When I did the management during program training sessions for our mentees, it was a different dynamic. People wanted to come. They were part of this program. They came. They sat in for an hour presentation. They gave up their time. But because of COVID, we can't be doing that. So as an alternative, and also to give this, I've received so many different inquiries from people as I talk about this. What is this thing you keep talking about? How does it work? I've had consults with people from other places around the United States who heard about it and want to know how it works. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build the model. That's the plan. And if I could say that... Uh, over the last two months, I have been building out the presentation decks. And what I'm going to do is just do a simple presentation deck for 10, 15 minutes and close it down. And my plan is to put these all out on the Beekeepers Corner YouTube 
in a playlist. I'll have playlists for the first section, the second section, the third section, and each of these things will be modules. So to give you a taste of the kind of cadence of this, which is agile, still subject to change, because as I go through it, I think, oh, I need to remember to cover that, and I need to add this in, and I've restructured them. The first parts of them are pretty solid. Obviously, I've written the presentations for them. But as I move along, I, I reorder the topics. But the first thing is the show introduction, then a concept about you want to keep bees, what does that mean? Keeping bees and understanding beekeeping in your neighbors. Local regulations. I'm going to use the New Jersey model, so it's kind of funny that they did the same thing. I had built the presentation for regulations or whatever, and I sent a note to Megan, uh, our state apier, saying, could you please review mine before I committed to... And then they did this presentation, um, announced this presentation and did this meeting. So I got to fact check mine. It was right, uh, I could have given the presentation that Frank gave because it was that aligned. I'm going to talk about choosing a style and I will dictate a style for this and give the rationale as to what styles. I need to explain to new people that beekeeping is local. I will go over the doggy ducky horsey, what is the equipment of a hive. I will give you the recommendation for a starter kit introduce you to the race of bees, get you out the door with the protective equipment, give you the synopsis of what other equipment you need to buy, stuff like queen excluders and so on, how to set up your apiary and pick your location, give you a little sense of how much time investment. And then I'm going to tell you how you source your bees. I figure if somebody's interested in beekeeping, once they have all that background, and they get to the point where they're committed to sourcing their bees, they're in, <laughs> right? But they'll get to know all that other stuff ahead of time. So there's logic in the, I think, my Kevin logic, on how this is all structured. And it continues through building your equipment, installing your bees, introduction to Varroa, Varroa monitoring, choosing Varroa treatments, learning and getting research, advice and guidance of tips and tricks in your first year. And eventually what it does is it takes you through your entire year. I decide I want to keep bees to ordering your equipment. Ordering your equipment to bees in the box. Bees in the box to hive full size. And so on. It progresses all the way to the second year of making splits and harvesting honey and doing all of that stuff. So I'm excited to get this going. And what I'm going to do is every Wednesday night, and I'll probably somewhere post a schedule, maybe on the BK Corner Facebook page and so on. Um, I'll be live if you want to come in and join. And then what I think I will do periodically through this is as I go through these, I'm going to have open Zoom sessions where I'm going to ask people, watch module one, two, three, and four. And then on this night, I'm going to come in and recap them and ask any questions. Because what I want is active feedback from people. What questions did they have that these didn't answer? Or what discussion did they have? Or, and this is where some people are going to be in the fringe. Some people are going to want to keep top bar hops or whatever. And maybe it opens the door to answer some of their questions. So getting started in beekeeping series presented by the Beekeeper's Corner. This is this thing that I've been hinting about. And the last thing to say about this is, isn't it odd to start this now? Actually, this is for next year. My plan is to record these all through the year, and then the entire catalog will be out there for next year when people decide they want to start keeping beekeeping. They can start in the beginning on their own time when they discover it, and it will always be out there. And the cool thing about this premise is that you could watch it, and you could go do it. And then if you're about to do something in the future, I'm about to do my first hive inspection or my first mite monitoring. You can come back. You'll know where the video is. And you're going to watch a 10-minute thing. And then you can go out in the yard and do it like a refresher. The, one of the challenges with current beekeeping is you learn everything you can learn, which is great in a short course in three days. 
but six months removed, you have no idea. And you're going back and you're looking at notes and you had no context of what you were doing when you went through that short course. I think it's going to change the way people interact. And what I've seen is the two to three years that we've been doing this in the Northwest Club is the trial balloon. Our beekeepers have been doing pretty well. I talked to them about how their hives are progressing, how comfortable they are. And they know where the videos are for the hour long sessions, hour and a half long sessions that we and I know they're going back and they're watching those parts that we taught them. Which, by the way, if you go to youtube.com slash NWNJBA, those videos that I'm talking about are actually the feature videos right now. I put them up so people could watch them. So the Getting Started Guide slash Manage Mentoring by Beekeeper's Corner with a great nod to Northwest because they've been great partners in this. Uh, it's coming to a Zoom meeting near you starting on Wednesday nights, probably 7.30, 7, 7.30, they'll be up. And I'll be sure to post on my website, uh, bkcorner.org, where you can join those. For topic number two, I wanted to talk about a bonus episode that's coming this week called Spring Inspection. I'm going to release a bonus episode. I wanted to give some context about it in case you stumbled across it. You know, as I think about it, if memory serves me right, I did this before once. What's it going to be? Simply just me talking out loud. It was me talking to me and me kind of talking to you. I thought to myself while I was going through my hives the other day that I would just take one of my microphones, clip it inside my shirt, and record what I was seeing. I spoke out loud to myself while I went hive by hive, narrating what I was seeing and leaving some notes for documentation of my hive records. So ultimately, that's what I'm always doing is sometimes I record my my inspections, and then I go back and fill out my notes. It makes me move faster. I don't have to stop and write. The other thing I thought of partway through this is, though, you know, maybe others would like to hear it and live vicariously through the inspections. So at times, you'll hear me talking about my decision processes, like I'm talking to you, but I'm talking to myself. Oh, Kevin moment. <laughs> Sharon was talking to me to talk to herself this week. And I called her out on it and said, we kind of laughed at the dynamic. And now as I think about it, this is the same thing. What she did was, while I was in her presence, she went through an evaluation of things we were going to do together, planning out our activities by talking to me, but she really wasn't talking to me. She would talk about something and inflect into the conversation what she might think about how I would react. So she was playing the part of me by simply using me sitting there inferring what I would say if I were really in the conversation. <laughs> I got a good giggle out of that because when I pointed it out to her, I said to her, I'm glad I could help. What's funny is how she sometimes perceives that I won't like something. It goes down, well, we're not going to do that because you're not going to like it. I didn't say anything. I just said there, minding my own business. So what you hear is me talking to you through talking to me, if that makes any sense. End of Kevin moment. In those recordings, I went hive to hive, articulating what I was seeing and leaving notes to myself of observations and follow-ups, even chastising myself at times for different things that I did. One of the things that's compelling me to produce this particular episode about spring inspection was the sense of how long I was uh, in each of the hives. I wanted to record it live so that I could go back and go, you know, you have these perceptions of how long it takes. I was only in that hive a couple minutes. Then you look at it and you go, well, I was in there actually 18 minutes. Is that a couple minutes? Not really. So I have yet to produce this. I don't know how long it took me to go through each one of the hives. That'll be interesting body of work. 
Um, yeah, when you're in that moment, it's not too evident. When you listen to the recording, though, you can't escape what real time means in measurement of minutes. So I'll produce the episode with a short little primer in front of it before it comes out on its own merit. But I wanted to give you a heads up in case you'd be interested in what is this bonus episode thing about. Now you know. We're at the back of the book. I'm going to move to the local hive report. As I said on the intro, local hives look good. And actually I, or maybe I should say we, did some of the season's first spring manipulations this weekend. Seven hives went into winter, seven hives came through. And this week afforded some of the first long string of warm weather and more importantly, weather at night that was above 45 degrees where the bees could be operational. It was 79 degrees when I did my first personal instruction or inspection. And I knew when I was doing that inspection that I had some follow-on days that were going to be warmer. So that's when I knew I could go in for the first time in earnest in the spring, other than the cursory peaks that I had done the weeks before. The reason I call this out is because in a moment I'm going to spend some time for a sidebar on spring reversals. And I want to kind of lock that in as a precursor to that conversation. In going into the hives versus a simple assessment by looking down through the frames, I think the hives are stronger than my first impression was. Either that or in the week that passed since I peeked in, they really went gangbusters. Uh, both of those things could be possible. So in particular, the four stack six frame polyhive was incredibly strong, more than I thought it was going to be. And the all-medium hive was just amazing. I knew it was strong, but I didn't realize how strong. In fact, I had to make a decision for swarm prevention on them. And this weekend, I took the first actions. I took the four-box polyhive coming out of winter. Uh, let me say that the way I've been saying it before. It's a six-frame poly. It's six frames over six frames over six frames over six frames. So this is the big one. For that box, I had an objective to free up those polystyrene nuke boxes. I want them for manipulations later in the spring for future expansion. So with some help from Bob Kloss and then eventually my brother Keith, who stopped by, this is the we part, we moved the frames, Bob and I, to the 10-frame polystyrene hive that I had cleaned up in reserve and was ready to go. To address the spring growth for that, I had two polystyrene mediums in reserve after harvesting honey from them last fall. So what I did was, and this is interesting, 6 over 6 over 6 over 6 equals 24 frames, and I moved them into a 20-frame hive configuration, so I had to cull four frames. So we went through all of the frames, and I pulled the four that were the worst, and I put them in a side nuke and stacked that box. Well, that hive had at least eight or nine frames of capped honey both sides to put in the top box, and it had, to my amazement, six seven frames of working brood and was just stacked with bees. The hive is so strong that in the next two weeks, it's probably got to be split to prevent swarming. And with the supers on top, I'd imagine that they're going to get to work. Now this week, it's supposed to cool off a little bit, but I did notice in two of the hives that some of them are already stored nectar. I could see nectar stored and ripened in just the first six, seven warm days that we've had so far in this spring. Other thing to make note of is I didn't see any drones, but I did see drones being built all over the place. Not a ton of them, but they're capped, which means they're on their way. And there were drones in some of the bridge comb between the boxes when we broke them open. 
The cool thing about it is we looked at any of the broken larvae, there were no mites. That's a good sign. And it should be noted that we did see the early spring cups, which are typical, but we did not see any queen cells. Now, if I go from hive to hive to hive, all of the frames or all of the, the hives were stronger than I thought. Pad number two, the new pad number two, was a six over six over six polystyrene, the only hive that did not do well. Had a smaller cluster. And what I did was the top box, the bees were on about two or three frames, maybe four. Second box had some reserves, but nothing going on. And the bottom box was empty. I like to consolidate it down. If they're that small, they don't need all that space. Pulled the bottom box out and put two. I suspect that in time they'll grow and I'll be able to build them back out. But that's the only hive that was slow. Now, I was so proud having gone through the top bar of how well it did that when Keith and Bob came over, one of the things I said is we're going to go through this hive. So the hive has, I think, 20-something frames, and the bees built from the end where the entrance is all the way through halfway and are starting to already move into three-quarter. So I, I was nervous. If you've listened to previous local reports about that, and I shouldn't have been. I'm just so happy at how good that hive looks. Now what I want to come back to is something that I tend to have mixed messages on. And I put a pin in this and now I'm going to come back. And there was a conversation that I overcommitted on in Facebook recently about this topic. I'm going to call this the spring swing. I know I'm in local hive report, but it has to do with reversals. I just prepared something for the getting started saying that beekeeping is local and you also want to assess each hive on its own merit. First thing you want to look at is the size of the cluster and their ability to stay warm. You also need to assess how much brood they have and what their future population will be. If you have a traditional two stack double deep medium I'm sorry, new, double deep, non-medium, double deep. And you want to do a traditional reversal. The premise being you're going to take the bees and put them down on the bottom board and they'll take the empty box underneath them and put it on top and they'll be able to grow up and grow the, blue, the brood chamber, the nest, so to speak. One, you don't want to divide them if they're so big that they're pushing down into the bottom box already. And two, they have to do well enough to go down on the bottom board and be near the entrance. On most traditional hives, you would have still an entrance reducer. I saw on Facebook a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, People were talking about doing reversals and talking about doing splits from like New York State. And what scares me is people are looking at that and my head explodes because I don't want our beekeepers breaking the propolis seals and forcing bees to come down to the bottom board where the air can blow through even a little hole and chill them on these cold 30 and 20 degree nights that are, have the potential in March and early April. So if you're doing reversals, please, this spring swing thing needs to be understood. You really got to have a big cluster so they can generate enough heat. That's the first thing, that if you put them down there, even a little cold's not going to harm them. They'll be able to shake it off. And they'll make it through a couple cool nights if that happens to be their future. But if you have a smaller hive and you're just doing it because reversals are supposed to happen now and you see other people doing it, you're doing it disservice. And I am still on the bandwagon of being conservative about breaking propolis sales. 
But, you know, to the contrary of that, and let me say this out loud, it's not too early to do reversals if your colonies are big. It's part of swarm management. You should be doing it to be ahead of the curve. So use your common sense. Look at every single hive. Is the cluster big enough? And if you're going to put that cluster down over the bottom board, are they going to be okay? You should know instinctively. So yeah, on my biggest hives, I did reversals. On one of them, which was medium, mediocre, I didn't do it. I left them up in the top box. I figured, why would I do that to them? And on the dink hive, the smaller one, I collapsed the space, but I left them up high. And you have to understand that some of those reversals that I did, I need to throw this in for full disclosure, I have slatted racks on those hives. I have slatted racks, which moves them further away, gives them a buffer from any cold air coming in that front entrance. So local hive report, good. Things are good. Check. I'm, I'm looking forward to, I got to start making spring split and honey production plans in earnest. And to that point, when I'm going to get my extractor, one of the things I'm short on right now is foundation for mediums. I'm going to order 10, 10 packs so I can put them in all those hives that I cleaned this summer or this winter. And all they need is just foundation and they'll be good to go. So local hive report, all good. Very happy. One of the best years I've had in a long time. And I'm looking forward to the season. So my preparatory tasks are for swarm management, honey production. And at some point I'll start talking about queen rearing. So this seems a good stopping point to close out this episode. A couple of closing comments. Uh, first up, uh, be people and the bugs that they love. Frank Mortimer's new book is coming available March 30th. Frank is well-known beekeeper in North Jersey. Uh, involved with the Northeast Branch, president, uh, also vice president of the New Jersey Beekeepers Association State Level Club. Mentioned him a little earlier in the episode. Uh, certainly a part of the New Jersey beekeeping scene, and I feel fortunate enough to have been provided a pre-release copy of Frank's book to read and finish that off in short order. I've been in contact with Frank just to touch back, and I wanted to share that I'll have him on the show soon to talk about what he has going on. In the meantime, you can visit frankthebeeman.com to see the preview of the book and place an order. The premise of Frank's book as you could probably tell from the title, centers around his journey to become a beekeeper and the people he encounters along the way. Uh, throughout the book, he explains a lot about beekeeping biology. I think if you're a new beekeeper, you'll really like that book. And even if you're a seasoned beekeeper, you'll recognize all that goes on and enjoy the stories of the different people. And I'm looking forward to get a chance to talk to Frank's experience about writing the book and what he put in there. I also wanted to mention that I had a sit-down, if that's what you can call these virtual sessions these days, with Kentucky beekeeper Doug Potter. It's been all on me that the discussion schedule for getting Doug on the show was bouncing around quite some time. I finally got my act together and had a one-to-one -one talk about bees with Doug. We spoke about a wide range of topics, and I'll throw in that I'm three-quarters of the way through his uh, wife's book, Bees in America, by Tammy Horn Potter. I have more to say about that audiobook when I'm finished, but I'm really enjoying that book also. So Doug and I spoke about uh, Kentucky beekeeping, and uh, I thought that recording went really well, and I'll have that out for the next episode. Yeah, Kevin Moment, who knew I'd be a book reader? I think all through entire high school, <laughs> I probably read... Only those books that were assigned to me never ever enjoyed sitting down and holding a book. All that changed when I switched over to audiobooks. And yeah, where is Audible? They could be sponsoring me because I am a huge uh, devourer of audiobooks. I just bought five books recently. And during the pandemic, I've been reading them nonstop. 
I've looked through the catalog and read quite a few of them on beekeeping and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want to talk about Tammy's book and the beekeeper's lament and how the two really go well together. So I'll have to put a note to put that in a future episode. Spring is sprung. It is a busy time of year. Looking forward to getting a visit from Megan, the state apiarist this week and uh, just getting the season underway. Lots of work to do. And I'm enjoying every moment of it. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening and be well.